Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey everyone, it's Joe Scott, the creator of Download, here with just a quick announcement before we start this uh, comment section episode. I want to let you know that we want to thank everyone who's been listening to our show, as well as those of you who've been reaching out to share parts of the story we were unaware of. We've heard from a lot of people who've worked in and around Ain't It Cool News over the years, and one of those people actually shared something that greatly changes the way this story ends. So with all that said, we want to let you know that this next episode will be starting next week. will be our mid-season finale of sorts. The goal will be then after that to come in four weeks after that, and uh, to end the show. There are some people who might be disappointed to hear this, and we apologize, but we thought that with this new information, it was important uh, to take that and to end the story in the best possible way. So hopefully you'll think it was worth it in the end. Now let's enjoy the show. On this bonus comment section of Download, we've got questions, comments, and feedback from listeners. A special update on the status of print newspaper film critics from someone who is still in the trenches. And a review of Matt Reeves' The Batman. All of this and more, so let's get ready to dial up, log on, and download. Welcome. Welcome to another comments section of Download. My name is Joe Scott, the creator of the show, and with me as always on these special bonus episodes is our executive producer, Christina Bell. How's it going, Christina? I'm great. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. You know, it's been um, it's been an interesting week. I got a surprise message in my uh, email box, and Ooh. that sort of led to this interview we're going to have later on today. We're actually going to be talking with a film critic who works for the Detroit News. His name is Adam Graham, and he, you know, he's one of the remaining few. This is a dying breed of print film critics who work for daily newspapers. You know, many of them have been laid off or reassigned, as we talked about in the episode. And uh, so it was great to bring him on and talk about what's been going on since the story ended, because, you know, the story largely focuses on events um, from the mid to late 2000s and i just want to hear about what was going on and to get his insights so uh that was great let me ask you this uh, did you grow up reading reviews in the newspaper at all i did i absolutely grew up reading reviews um so i would uh, try and figure out what movie i wanted to see i'd look look it up in the newspaper um and then i would read the reviews to try and make my decision between a couple of them i mean that wasn't the only thing that informed my decision you know i was a kid so um, I would I would rely on other kids and and trailers and whatnot. But, you know, the reviews were definitely part of it. Um, and there were some reviewers that I would consistently agree with and some that I wouldn't. So I would kind of keep that in mind, um, you know, because it is, you know, they're they're informed. But um, there's a little bit of subjectivity there for sure. Yeah. Not every movie is made for every person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, I I have a relationship with movie reviews on, on two different sides. One side being as someone who 
read them. Another side was on someone who wrote them. But then, actually, there's an additional side. I, I used to run a movie theater. And I can tell you, as someone who ran a movie theater, reviews mattered for independent films. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, having a review in the paper for an independent film uh, made a huge difference. Even if the review was bad, and that was crazy. You know, you, there would be a bad review for this tiny little documentary that no one had ever heard of. But the fact that it was reviewed made people just decide to go out and see it, even if the review was bad. And not having those reviews made a huge difference um, for these smaller films. And once you took the reviews out, the other thing that happened was um, distributors stopped running ads in newspapers. And they stopped running ads. Uh, you know, and these these are smaller distributors, so they're not buying ads during the Super Bowl or, or during football games or anything. So uh, it just everything started scaling back. I had a, a newspaper editor complain. Um, he was in my Facebook feed and he was complaining. This was 10 years ago about how n- movie theaters were not buying ads in the paper anymore. And he didn't know where to find the showtime. So I thought, well, you're being a little facetious. You can find them online. Right. <laughs> but the other piece is uh, you guys drew first blood. You fired your film critics yeah. first and then – we pulled the ads because it there was just no content there to draw readers to see the the ads. Yeah, no, that's a great point. No, and w- I grew up in a town that didn't have an independent movie theater. I mean, it got one eventually, but not when I was young. So we didn't have a lot of access to independent films beyond uh, renting them at video stores. I actually worked at a video store, so I got a lot of content that way. But I remember going to New York and like there'd be a release of like a documentary or something and it would have a great deal of buzz from it, from a review that was in the newspaper. Um, And, you know, if it got the buzz from the review, it was shown more in in the bigger markets, New York and LA, and then you would get it in some of the major theaters in the smaller towns. Right. So yeah, you can definitely see how reviews had an impact on whether or not they were shown in various markets. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. You know, I think all this just goes to say that this was a very important episode for me. It was something that I wanted to talk about sort of looking at cinema culture on a macro level and how, you know, you have the rise of one thing independent of the downfall of something else. You know, Mm -hmm. these print film critics were, were being laid off. They were losing their jobs and it just sort of allowed the culture to sort of put the gas on one aspect of the culture and to completely freeze out another, you know, and I I think that not having film criticism on the level that it used to be, especially in these print publications um, made a huge impact on Mm -hmm. the movies we now see every day. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about all the time you you go online and everyone's giving their takes on the Batman. And, you know, uh, I joke about this later with Adam that we become part of the problem by also talking about the Batman. But uh, I can promise you. <laughs> I have you... not seen the Batman. I probably won't, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there you go. There you go. You know, and, and that's the thing is, now that I, I, I don't review movies professionally, and so the last question I'm concerned is whether or not people should go and see a movie. I don't care. It's up to you. Sure. I'm not being paid to tell you this information so make up your own your own mind that to me is the least important question about a movie anyways i'm always looking at movies good or bad for their ideas but i want to go see the worst person in the world that's what i want to go see great movie 
Oh, good, good. You've seen it. I have seen it, and uh, it's coming to Hulu soon. So just, cool. just it's going to be at your house soon, and Sweet. honestly, might be the best movie of the year. Awesome. Yeah, that I makes think. me happy. Yeah, I'm excited. It's at our local independent theater, so I might try and catch it there. Give them some support, right? Give yeah. them some love. They yeah. need it the most, really. Yes, for sure. <laughs> As someone who used to run it, a local indie theater, uh, yeah, tough times. Um, even before COVID. So. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's just go ahead and dive into this mailbag. Okay. So um, I have four questions that are kind of similar. So I'm going to read them to you all at um, the same time. All so. right. Go ahead. Dive in. All right. So this one is from Brian R. And he writes, the Blade 2 review. Ugh. I totally forgot the level of cringe on that one. So gross. I do think reading that review was the point I finally bailed on the site. I had a one-year-old daughter at the time, and it might have been the first time I was forced to reflect on a lot of the misogynistic content I had happily consumed all those years. The second uh, comment, um, also about Blade 2, is from Ya Boy Treats, um, who writes, You quoted the Blade 2 review. I was simultaneously dreading and <laughs> anticipating this day. Now we have one from Brandon. I just got to the part of the Harry Knowles podcast that covered his Blade 2 review. You guys tried to warn me. I wasn't ready. Oh. And, and last, we have one from Daniel. This week's episode of Download needed a content warning for broadcasting an audio clip of that Harry Knowles review. We had a content warning. We did, but, yeah, you know. Maybe so, you needed three because it was so gross. <laughs> I think the first time you read any excerpt of this review was when I gave it to you in, yes. in the script for this episode. What thoughts were going through <laughs> your mind as, as you read this? I was review? horrified. It was gross. Um, you know, it really gave me a lot of insight into the type of content that was on the site. And I was a little bit bewildered um, that you know, the site became as popular as what it was if that was, you know, indicative of the type of content that you see on it. So I can say that it didn't start out that way, you know, and yeah. this, this was, you know, there's a reason I did. I think a lot of people, when they heard that I was making this show, they were really hoping that this would be the Blade 2 Review podcast show, where I just <laughs> talk about the Blade 2 Review every episode and then it ends. Um, but the site existed for five years before this review. This review came out in 2002. Um, and so it really wasn't indicative of a lot of the writing, even Harry's writing at the time. You know, there there were some problematic things and questionable things that sort of slipped into his reviews, but never on this scale. This, this review, when it emerged, I remember clicking it when it came out, when it dropped, because I was really excited about this movie. And because the first Blade movie was awesome. It was great. And I think as much as um, anything, that that's a huge reason why so many comic book movies are made today. It showed that you can go back and make them after Batman and Robin. Blade kind of balanced things. But going back to <laughs> this review, when I clicked it and read it, I was like, what in the hell? Man, this was, uh, it was, I thought it was crazy even then, you know, and I will say this, if I wasn't reading the reviews of other people who were writing for that site at the time, I probably would have dropped out too. You know, it, it really was just extra. It was a lot. It was too much. 
And, yeah, uh, if it was the first thing I'd read, like if I wasn't familiar with the site and I clicked on that, I would never click on that site again. Yeah. You know, really, that's why I waited till now to talk about it, because that's really the context. You know, the, the site didn't start out with just review after review written in the style of this Blade 2 review. You know, he was yeah. mainly writing these stream of consciousness essays that gave you his experience leading up to watching a movie. He would often write more about his experience in going to the movies then about the movie itself. And so, you know, that was sort of its own style. And then this Blade 2 piece is just a thing in and of itself. And uh, yeah, I yeah. I agree with everyone. And, and But also we did put a content warning on every single episode of this show. Yes, <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. We need all the content warnings for, for this series. There's so yeah. much to unpack here. Oh. Yeah. It doesn't get better in the next episode either. <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> All right, so our next question is from Mitchell, who um, it, um, gives us a compliment. So hey. he writes, yeah, the actor you got to play Harry. Shocked and stunned how good he is. Great casting. Amazing talent. The voice was that accurate? I initially thought you must be pulling audiographs. Astounding work. I agree. The actor is fabulous. Ben Jones. Mm-hmm. I've known Ben Jones for a long time. I I actually was in the audience during his very first comedy show. He's a, a stand-up comedian and I was going to open mics and he came up on stage and did his first set um, at this club in my town. And so I've known him for a while and, and I'll be candid right now and say this. He was actually my second choice for this role. Oh. The first choice uh, was someone else I'd known for a long time, a local actor in my city and, uh, you know, I contacted him. He was interested in working with me on a project. And so I thought, you know, and, and this is going to sound crazy, but I think really the best way to make sure that they're up for this is to just have them read the Blade 2 review from beginning <laughs> to end. And so. And if they're willing to stay, you know, they're a keeper. <laughs> I sent the first actor the Blade 2 review. And a couple of days later, I got a message back saying, yeah, I'm not going to do this. I don't blame them. I you know, it. it was, it, it is a lot, you know, and, and I gave it to Ben after that and Ben did a really good job. And, and actually, you know, for those of you who want to hear the Blade 2 review in its entirety, we didn't, we didn't do like show level audio of the Blade 2 review, but I will attach uh, Ben Jones audition tape to the very end of this episode. For those of you who want to hear what he read uh, to get the job to play uh, Harry Knowles in this show it's really so, fun yeah I, that that'll just be a, a bonus i don't know if you'll call it a treat <laughs> but it's it it's will be something. there it is something, something. so yeah <laughs> let's check that out all right so our next question is from slow learner who writes listening to the ain't it cool news podcast and i can't believe we let such a bunch of self-absorbed entitled assholes have such an effect on film culture yeah, what were we thinking, Joe? Well, you know, what's interesting about this is I feel like they use the words let and have as in past yeah. tense. Sure. And I think... Yeah, that's a good point. There are a lot... You know, one of the things that... You know, I've thought about this a lot lately. One of the things that, that Harry Knowles and Anna Cool News did was they introduced this added level to film critic where it was film critic as influencer or influencer as film critic. So they added this whole other culture to it and um when you go on twitter you you find people that are that are playing at that game still and you know some of these people they hate harry knowles but the greatest irony is that a lot of them behave 
just like him, you know, minus the blade you review minus the allegations, just this level of self-absorbed behavior and, and sort of really, I think making their work as much about them, if not more so than uh, the movies that they're talking about. So mm-hmm. I, I, I do think that, um, that there was a lot of self-absorption in these ain't it cool days. And I, I think it's only continued. I have seen a lot of critics that have found a good balance though, you know, like they have a social media presence, but they use it in a way that is um, respectful and also, you know, on, on topic. Um, so I think that we definitely have some out there. Um, so hopefully uh, we can just keep weeding out the bad ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our next question is from Couch Boom. Um, so Couch Boom writes, listening to Download Pod and Drew McQueenie's point about no more Batman and Robins made me realize that a Batman movie with Robin has now become the impossible dream, given up in a desperate pursuit of making Batman realistic into oblivion. Thoughts on that, Joe? You're more yeah. of a Batman expert than me. I am kind of uh, the resident Batman expert here <laughs> in this room. I will say that uh, um, I think that unfortunately that might be true. And and the reason I say unfortunately is because for me, some of the best parts about the Batman, and I'm not trying to review the whole movie right now, but the best parts of the Batman brought out this character in the way he interacted with the Catwoman. You know, because I think we've seen as much of the loner Batman as we will ever need. I think Batman needs Robin. I think that Robin makes Batman do work on himself instead of just being sort of a brooding, narcissistic, nihilistic loner, a raging, angry person. Like they suddenly become responsible for another human life. And um, it it just gives the character more levity. It makes the character grow. And I think as long as we keep making Batman movies without Robin, you know, whether it's because there is no Robin or because Robin has died, which was the case in uh, the Snyder films. He's always just going to be kind of a dark, brooding loner. And, you know, I guess that can be fun for a time, but I would like to see the character grow. So that's all I'm going to say. I can see a benefit in having a little bit of a light light character to contrast the darkness. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Uh, All right. Our next question is from John Harden. Um, He asks, is the plan to have a bonus episode after every actual episode? Mm. (laughs) So... Sorry if you don't like our bonus episodes, John. Oh, it's okay. You know, and, and thank you for listening, John. The sure. one thing I'll say is that we, you know, you have a full-time job and a kid. Yes. Eddie, who uh, does the sound engineering on our show and, and keeps it from sounding completely awful. He's um, fabulous. Thanks, fabulous. Eddie. Yeah. <laughs> he has a full-time job and a kid. And I have a full-time job and a kid. And um, the only way we can really make this show work is to do it bi-weekly. And, you know, one of the things I thought to do is just sort of keep a weekly pace and give people some extra content was to do these bonus episodes. So you're more than welcome to skip the bonus episodes. Yeah. I'm not, I'm, you know, we're never going to do anything in these bonus episodes that will make it dependent to understanding what happens in a standard narrative episode. But, um, just little bonus content and um but yeah thanks thanks for listening we appreciate yeah, it. yeah for sure i think not all of our audience will want to take this deeper dive into the content but it's here if you would like it yeah. um our next question is from bob o 
Um, and it's about uh, the bonus episode comment section, volume three. He says, great interview with Patrick Soriel. He hit the nail on the head about Harry's cringy basement dweller language and writing style. That sort of language always made it difficult for me to take his writing seriously. Yeah. You know, you sort of had a crossroads there where you had Patrick Sorrell, who was interested in the serious work of entertainment journalism. And, you know, he didn't want to be considered a geek. He wasn't really trying to sell himself as an influencer and as a product in conjunction with his site. And Harry did the opposite in a lot of ways. And that's why Harry won. And Harry intertwined influencer and critic where, you know, and Patrick will admit this himself. He did not do those things and that's why he failed. And I, I do miss Patrick. And I think we might've had a different film culture if we went another way in those early days of the internet. We didn't though. And, you know, the influencer reigns everywhere. So, okay. Our next question is from Daniel who writes, I got triggered hearing the blade Two review read out loud Real question, though. Have any new Ain't It Cool News folks reached out to you since the podcast premiered? Something like that happened with the Mars Hill podcast, resulting in more material and more episodes for that series. So any wow. updates? Yeah. Um, I need to and what is this... the Mars Hill podcast? I know nothing about it. That's why I was like, wow, I, I would like to. I have to look into that. Yeah. Um, I know Mars Hill is a college in North Carolina, a university, but that's all I know. Yeah. That's why, you know, I'm like, this is sort of pinging on multiple parts of my interest, but mm-hmm. I do communicate with a few members of the Ain't It Cool team still. Um, some of them I don't, and it's, it's not that there's um, any animosity there. We just, you know, some of them are busy doing things. Uh, some of them, you know, we struck up friendships after our conversations, uh, concluded and so um i don't think we're going to make more episodes after this story (laughs) is concluded this is a a finite story so i I don't know if that was the hope but you know i i do still talk with some of the people and i still appreciate the work some of them are doing now uh long after their time with ain't it cool news i think that's fair um sean burns writes Admittedly, I've still got like nine years left to go in this endless episode, but pontificating on the collapse of newspaper revenues without mentioning Craigslist is objectively hilarious. Sean Burns is a is a film critic, um, and he actually wrote a, a, a couple of different posts or tweets about this episode, and you know he seemed a little upset, a little dismissive, but you know he has a good point that. Craigslist was a huge reason why newspapers were suffering. You know, we had, we had a very difficult time um, telling this full story. And, and, you know, he points out this episode was long and it could have been longer because I think the newspaper industry died a death of a thousand cuts. Craigslist was certainly one of the big ones, but, you know, we, we weren't focusing on all the things that caused newspapers to uh, crash. Um, I was I was really more focused on uh, the lives that were harmed and, you know, the people who lost their jobs, you know, and specifically the stories of um, of Rene Rodriguez and then uh, Craig Lindsay, Betsy Pickle. And, you know, I really zeroed in on Betsy Pickle's story because she was just she's such funny. a character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love the fact that she knew she was about to get fired. So she took the call sitting on the toilet. Desperately tried to poop to no avail. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah she, she's funny. Yeah. Uh, 
No, I agree. I mean, gosh, there's a whole documentary about the demise, a great documentary. What's it called about the demise of I don't know film what it's criticism? Called. I would love to. Oh, well, there's, so there is for the love of film, for, for the, the love, love of movies. Yes. Yeah, I think that's the one I'm thinking of. I saw it at uh, at a film festival. But yeah, there's a whole documentary that goes into that. Um, there's not something we can do in one episode because we're talking about film criticism in relation to Ain't It Cool News, right? So there's limitations there. But yeah, thanks for mentioning that Craigslist affected, you know, newspaper revenues. I think that's a great point. Yeah, and the other thing I would say is that if someone wants to make a story about the death of print newspaper film criticism, I would love to listen to that podcast. Mm-hmm. You know, that sure. sounds great to me. And yeah, you know, that sounds great. Maybe the person to do that is Sean. And I'd go, say, Sean. bring it on, Sean. I would love to hear it. <laughs> yeah. Sign us up. Yeah. We will, we will be your first listeners. Yeah. So, you know, all, I guess all that sort of sets us up for um, our guest, which is Adam Graham, you know, and this Sunday, you know, COVID restrictions have been, have been loosening and, um, it was my partner's birthday weekend, so we did something we haven't done um, since this virus. We we celebrated um, her birthday at a restaurant, and we were having a great day. It was a wonderful meal. We were having a wonderful time, and then I get a message from someone I don't know in my uh, direct messages on Twitter. I'm like, oh, great. What's this going to be? And I opened it, and there was this really nice message from this person named Adam Graham. You know, he was talking about the episode, and and what it meant for him as someone who still works in the industry. And so I reached out to Adam and said, Hey, I would love to just bring you on and let's talk about how things are going now. And maybe also talk about the Batman. And um, so he did that. One thing I'll tell you is that as we start talking about the Batman, we get to a point where I'm like, you know, we, we have to spoil this to really share um, some things I'm thinking about. So if you've not seen the Batman, if you want it unspoiled, um, I let you know when that part happens in the interview and you can just skip it. But yeah, I was really, it was a great conversation and um, you can see that Adam is still very passionate about his work, which you absolutely have to be considering, you know, like at any moment, like his is a job that could be eliminated from any newspaper because it's happening. It's happened all the time, but you know, he still loves it and he still seems very, uh, very enthused, even if the movies he's able to see now aren't as consistently good as they were even 10 or 20 years ago. And so it was a great discussion. And let's go ahead and just jump into that right now. Can't wait to hear it. So I just want to welcome to our show, Adam Graham, who is the film critic for the Detroit News. Uh, How's it going, Adam? Going well. How about how about with yourself? I'm doing good, man. You know, I gotta say, you really surprised me. Every time we drop an episode, we get a lot of different opinions, and uh, you know, film Twitter definitely has uh, its takes. But uh, I got this message from you in my inbox, and I I read it. It was just a a really interesting thing to read, and I guess. What inspired you to uh, to write to me? Well, I've been listening to the show, and you know, I'm interested in the subject matter, and it's been an interesting kind of journey. I- I'm not, you know, super with the Harry Knowles story, but I found, I-, I think, in an early episode, you kind of posited that, um, you know, the the ramification, not the ramifications, but the influence of him is felt so much. 
um, on film culture today. And I, and I, I, I understand his, his importance and his influence. And um, uh, I, I, but I hadn't, I hadn't totally connected the dots on the, the things that the site championed becoming what we see in multiplexes and especially the way that we see those movies even being made from the ground up, having so much uh, influence from fan culture. So in that, in that perspective from the very beginning, I was, I was, I was interested, but when you got to the, the fifth episode, which is um, the Neil Cumston episode, um, you were talking very much, it's not like a bottle episode to me um, because you were talking about film criticism, uh, especially in terms of the way that it died in the, the effects of newspaper critics being, uh, you know, losing their jobs and kind of how that opened up the, the arena to a, a different type of critic and then the influence that those critics have had. You were just very much in my wheelhouse in terms of um, when I got into, when I got into journalism, when I got into newspapers and the kind of experience that I've had um, as a film critic at a, you know, at a major metropolitan daily. Um, and, you know, I, I think that my case is, is somewhat unique. I've always recognized that it is. Um, but you, you were just, it, it very much felt like it could, have, it could have been nothing to do with the Harry Knowles story to this point that you had been telling. I just felt like the you know, the 80 minutes or whatever that you spent in episode five could have been a standalone episode and you were very much speaking to to me and my interests. And so that's why, you know, and, and look, I, I, I know that, um, I, I know how feedback works and I know that oftentimes people get the negative feedback far more than they get the positive. Um, and so I wanted to uh, just reach out to you and tell you that, you know, I, pre I I think that you were spot on in a lot of the things that you said. Um, and, and I just kind of wanted to share my story with you just in case there was any um, interest, interest or, or, or relevance that I could kind of, um, you know, or, or context that I, that I could give and say, hey, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy out there. Here, here's my story. And both, I appreciate the, uh, the work that you put into that. I, I feel like you, you hit it you know, right down the middle and, um, you know, and here's me and here's what, here's what I've experienced and here's where I think that you're correct. Well, you know, let's get a little bit of context on your experience. So I guess, how old are you right now? You know? Yeah, I'm 43, uh, uh, 43 years old. Okay. I turned, I turned All right. 44 in May. So you're of my generation. Sure. How old are you? I've, I've wondered that. I've been trying to piece it together uh, in listening, but I, I, I figured you were, I, I thought you might be like like maybe five to ten years younger than me. <laughs> maybe I just act or uh, speak five to ten years younger, but uh, I am you minus two. Okay. Okay. Um, and what I'll say is that when I graduated college, yeah. like the very week I graduated college, um, I went downstairs to my student lobby because I didn't have a computer in my room. This was this was the time I graduated college. And, you know, I was going to college with the idea that I would finish and I would start to work for a newspaper mm -hmm. and work my way towards becoming a film critic. Mm -hmm. And I get on the, this computer in the student lobby and I see that 
they fired the only <laughs> daily newspaper film critic in my entire metropolitan district. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but they were starting to just line up heads everywhere. Like people were just getting lopped off left and right. Yeah. And uh, that, that this thing I'd worked my whole life towards this goal I'd had my whole life was uh, completely decimated. <laughs> I, I laugh. I, I laugh not because it's funny. I laugh because I understand. It was, you know, and it was one of those things too, where I, I even still tried to make a go of it. And, you know, I thought maybe I could fake it till I make it. Maybe I thought I could work so hard that I could change the seismic <laughs> happenings that this world around me was experiencing but no (laughs) nothing nothing like that at all and and, you know I had to pivot and one of the things I did was I worked at a summer camp and uh there I I taught a podcasting class and then just started working with audio that's basically uh what brings us on the phone together but (laughs) I guess for you one of the people that did get the job congratulations you. you are one of the few and uh how how does how does it feel uh, no it, it feels really good um good. And, and i can kind of tell you about you know i i can tell you about my journey uh uh in the biz i gotta um in, it, you know what when you said you uh you minus two, you said you minus two or you plus two minus two i'm you minus two so you are me plus two good. exactly that's very very key because i got in I feel like, you know, last of the Mohicans in a sense, in terms of like getting in uh, a job in, in, in the entertainment section of, of a newspaper and kind of having that be my path. Um, I, I graduated college in 2000 and I had a job. I got a job immediately at um, the Desert Sun in Palm Springs, California. Uh, and I'm a Michigan boy, born and bred. I'd never been out to California before my interview uh, out there, I don't think. Um, got that job and I was out there writing in the entertainment section out there for a year and a half. Uh, and then I got hired back at, uh, the Detroit news in 2002, um, where I'd had an internship prior and, you know, I, I really had no illusions of ever being the film critic. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to work in that arena. Um, but I just knew that's the plum job, you know, that's the job that you, you climb the mountain for, uh, and and maybe one day you get it. And I had been there maybe two or three years, uh, and I was really good, you know, friends and and colleagues with the film critic, uh, Tom Long. And, you know, we always talked about movies and like, I did feature stories around movies, but I was never reviewing movies, um, you know, which I had done in college. And that was the reason I got the job at the college paper was just to be the college paper film critic, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it was maybe around 04 or 05, whenever the, um, the Lindsay Lohan movie, uh, Just My Luck came out. I missed that one. Was it good? Dude, I mean, a lot of people did. It was, it, it, was, af- it was a couple of years after, maybe it was a year after Mean Girls or whatever. And the, and the Lohan machine was kind of dying down. Maybe it was even 06. Um, okay. But- they, they were just my luck. It was a Lindsay Lohan movie. And, and Tom, the, the film critic, was like, why don't you review this one? And I was like, oh, my God. I was like, I couldn't believe that I was going to get to review a movie officially, you know, for my newspaper. Like, in, 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 the, archi- in the stands of time, um, my review would be the one that was, that was the, 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 the review of record from the news for just my luck. Um, and, and I, and I wrote it and I way, way overwrote it because I was so, I, I wanted to make an impression and I wanted to do a good job. And, 
you know, I started with this quote from like, I don't know, the Greek philosopher so-and-so once said, and it was just like, <laughs> it was, it was horrible. But I was trying really hard to flex the muscle. I was trying to say, I do belong in this space. Um, you know, I, I can really, really do this. Um, and after that, I, I, became, um, I became the B guy to our main film critic, to Tom Long. Um, and so like, you know, maybe once a month, I, I would do, you know, the, the offshoot horror thing or the, you know, the, just the smaller thing that wasn't the main thing of the week. Um, and, and I kind of tooled around in that space until about um, 2015, 2016. Uh, you know, and I was totally fine doing that, you know, like, and it, it, if I get to review movies, but I'm not the main film critic, that's totally okay. I was doing plenty of other stuff at the newspaper. I was the music guy. I was reviewing concerts. I was, you know, and I still kind of do that stuff on the side as well. Um, but then I got, you know, he retired at the end of 2015. And I had, you know, in maybe like 2014, 2015, I got sent to cover the Toronto Film Festival. So I was starting to kind of be more in that space. Um, but I sort of thought that when he retired, the job might retire with him. Um, yeah. You know, and, and that's kind of the way that things are going. Even for us to have still had him reviewing films full time at the newspaper was somewhat of an anomaly because, um, you know, just as you talked about every, you know, so many other papers cut that job. And yeah, we did. It was the first the to news. go. God bless us. We didn't do that at the Detroit News. Um, but still, I didn't think that that would, once he retired, it would be a, a title that continued. It did, and I got it. And since 2016, I've been the I've been the film critic at the news. Um, and you know, and and that that took the you know that took my monthly or my yearly movie watching, you know, which as a as a as a fan and as a semi uh, professional critic was you know probably 130 150 movies. Doing it full time immediately bumps you up to like you know, 230, 250 movies. Um, and, you know, you, you can go much higher than that. <laughs> but yeah. in, in mine, I, I don't know. I think, I think my peak year might've hit, you know, high 290s or maybe 300. Um, regardless, uh, doing that full time, it, it was kind of the only thing I ever wanted to do. Uh, doing it now. And I, and, I, and I know that I'm extremely fortunate to be able to do it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and we only touched on this briefly in the episode, but there were like a lot of factors that impacted the world of print film criticism, you know, and one of them being just the changes in the, in the consumer mindset where you had online versions of the newspaper that were free. And so people yep. stopped buying the paper. I had you share a review with me and I was very happy to find out that your paper is charging people to access its content. I think that's a paywalling the content is important and it really is something that should have happened from day one. They were just trying from day to one with AOL. Yeah. Right. Right. And like, you, you know, said, once you make something you free for a consumer bottle when everybody got absolutely used to and accustomed to uh, free content, it's really, really hard to go back. Yeah. Yeah. People revolt. They get angry. Exactly. And, I, um, I get it all the time. Um, you know, if, if, a, if a review gets tweeted, well, it's behind paywall. Guess I won't be reading that. You know, like I did something wrong because we're charging for content or something. They're mad at you personally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm so sorry, man. But, uh, you know, I guess 
The other thing is, you know, a couple of other factors that I really didn't touch on. One of them being Craigslist, you know, Craigslist decimated classified sections, which was a real moneymaker for papers. hundred percent, you know? And, yeah, and once- for sure. There's so many factors with the rise of the internet that, you know, print newspapers just weren't ready for and were way, way late in making the types of corrections that needed to happen in order to, you know, sustain a viable business model. I mean, the other one being uh, the housing market crash, you think, oh, that affects the economy, but it affected the real estate section. You know, when people aren't buying real estate ads because they're not buying or selling houses anymore, that hurt my paper a lot. And I saw that from two different angles, one of them being, you know, the paper side, but then I was also working for a realtor company doing publicity work. And I saw the, the ad reps from the newspaper just sort of begging begging people to please buy ads in the real estate section uh, during the housing market crash um, because that was just money that wasn't coming in anymore. And Yeah, you, you know, know it's, it's difficult too, especially, you know, when your main product is a physical, tangible print newspaper. You, you can't expect that to last forever. You know, you can't, but, but the, the journalism within um, remains as viable or, uh, you know, more important than ever. It's just, you know, the finances are all askew and it's, you know, cause you're fighting against all these entities when financial wise, when you could just be, you know, cranking out stories, but you, you know, I, I've seen my staff at the newspaper completely decimated over the last yeah. 15 years, especially, but you know, any, at any point therein. um, you know, from year to year, it's down. It's tough. It's been, it's been, you know, when I got to the paper in 2002, I think we had like 20 some odd people in our features section, um, various reporters, et cetera. We're down to three. <laughs> wow. It's me, the food writer and the, and a general assignment writer. Well, you know, my, my paper in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina, the Greensboro news and record, they were at, they had more than a hundred, you know, in the newspaper overall. And now the total number of staff writers for the paper is uh, at four. Oh, the, the entire oh man. Yeah, no, it's, it's, um, it's, 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 it's wild. <laughs> it's wild. You know, and, and an interesting <laughs> thing happens with, you know, it was an interesting thing that happened when they got rid of all these film critics, our cinema culture shifted towards, you know, like, escapism and fantasy and, and science fiction and you know when they got rid of a lot of just general news reporters who report about our reality it seems like our reality also shifted towards science fiction and fantasy and conspiracy theories and just wildly unfounded rumors and lies it's uh it's weird how they both took the same trajectory no, it, it's very true. And it was something that I kind of always in my um, kind of thinking about these things attributed to kind of like a culture shift around 9-11. Um, and it was immediately after 9-11 was, was Lord of the Rings 2001. Was that December 2001? That was the year. Yes. Yeah. And, it, mm-hmm. you know, and then Spider-Man the following summer. And I just felt like after 9-11, escapism became the thing. Um, but you can absolutely tie that into... Uh, the rise of the internet and, and, and the voice of the internet as well. I think you put those things in, 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 in you know, uh, tandem with each other. And that's when you, you know, you start to piece together how we get to where we're at today. It, along yeah. with many, many other factors, et cetera. But, 
those are, I think those are huge, huge contributing factors. Let's talk a little bit about cinema culture and cinema discourse right now. You know, um, right now we have a lot of people who wanted to be film writers. And it seems that many of them struggle to imagine anything else they want to do with their life, which really has to be the case. If you're going to write about film, you have to be kind of pot committed. Unfortunately, you're pot committed to a game where there are very few players left. And so we have a lot of unemployed film writers and aspiring film writers. We have a lot of underemployed film writers and aspiring film writers. And, you know, it's sort of all of these critics who are like, rats in a barrel and that barrel <laughs> is twitter and if you go on twitter they're eating each other like that's and it's you know there's no cinema discourse to talk about their big rallying point they they one they've kind of mutated into sort of a hybrid of a film critic and an influencer so they take on a lot of the influencer characteristics just like harry knowles did and then two um, it seems they're just as interested in provoking angry, vicious responses from each other as mm -hmm. they are in ever talking about any movies. And it's like one of their bragging points is to get blocked. They get blocked by someone for saying awful, horrible, hateful shit. And so then they post the image of, of that person having blocked them of the block, yeah. you know, and that's their pelt. That's another, that's another X on the side of their airplane they've been firing shots from i gotta say that's not great no it doesn't seem um it doesn't seem extremely healthy and i'm not i'm not built in that way um in terms of um it, it, it a lot of that discourse just i i don't find a whole lot of interest in it or value in it and i try very hard not to participate in it uh, my Twitter feed is not geared towards those types of comments just because, I don't know, the negativity, like I said, I don't find it interesting. I don't find it valuable. I don't find it positive or productive. And even if like the, that is the discussion or, or the discourse, I, I just don't have a lot of room in my brain for it. So I, I honestly don't participate in it a whole lot. And it's mostly um, a self-preservation thing because I, I don't feel like getting in a shouting match. I don't feel like being called an idiot. Um, if I get called an idiot, I'll probably be like, oh my God, that person's right. And then I'll feel bad about myself. And I just don't really <laughs> feel like, like doing that too much. So I, I, I really, my, you know, it's, I have a lot of music news <laughs> in my Twitter feed, uh, you know, friends, um, other things that I find interesting. And I, because I think that, that you know, the word toxic gets thrown around a lot these days. Um, uh, perhaps fittingly, maybe perhaps unfittingly, but I, I do find so much of that discussion just kind of gross. So I, I try yeah. to kind of remove myself from it as much as possible while still doing my job. Yeah. And one of the things I really try to be mindful of is I'm really trying, and I fail in this regard from time to time, I'm sure, but I really try to define myself by the things that I like and the things that I yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a good mentality. And I, I try to do the same thing, you know, I'll, I'll big up yeah. something. Um, but I try not to kind of, I, I don't know. I, I, back in the days when, when Twitter wasn't as kind of crazy as it is now, um, I, I think I used to bomb on things a lot more um, because that was kind of, it, it, I don't know, maybe it was more innocent. Maybe I was just younger, 
but now I'm just not as interested in doing that. Um, and I'm kind of embarrassed of, you know, <laughs> old, old, old tweets, you know, whatever, how, how that goes. I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that. <laughs> so I guess the cinema culture today, like you're in it. Um, what are you seeing like in terms of what, what's your impression of sort of the current modern slate of, of cinema, of, of films that are coming out in theaters? Are you, are you having good feelings, bad feelings? Are you optimistic? You know, uh, you know, we came up at a, at a time when, you know, you probably got Entertainment Weekly in the mail, just like I did. And mm -hmm. there was, you know, we were kind of coming of age and of film age in the boom time of, you know, 90s independent cinema. And it was so exciting and it was so cool to have like, you know, Entertainment Weekly was by no means like underground or something, but you felt like you, there, was a, there was a world right beneath the, the blockbusters that you could really burrow into and, um, you know, start following directors and start following, you know, themes and in, 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 in areas where interesting films were coming out of. And that was, you know, coinciding with me being a teenager and kind of really getting into film, it, that, was, that was what sold the whole thing for me. Um, I always liked movies as a kid growing up. Um, you know, I, for show and tell or whatever, uh, in elementary school, on Monday mornings, I would stand up and tell the classroom what movies I saw and whether or not they were good. You know what I mean? But then once the 90s hit, it was like, wow, boom talent, so interesting. And then, you know, where we're at today is just, you know, you, you kind of, you, you look at the top 10 films over the last, you know, 20 or 30 years, every year, uh, box office wise, and you slowly start to see like, well, six of them are sequels or IP and then seven. And then I'm pretty sure last year it was all 10, depending on where Free Guy ended up. Might have, maybe it was 11, maybe it was in the top 10. Um, but, you know, Free Guy, not necessarily the, um, you know, uh, planting the flag for original independent, independently thought-minded filmmaking or something. Um, so I just, you know, when it's the sequel of the week and the, and the, and the kind of empty blockbuster of the week, I, I find myself really kind of craving um, a, a culture. I found myself really recently wondering, like, who's going to be the Quentin Tarantino that comes along to kind of blow everything up? Like the... Um, the way that Nirvana kind of came along and, you know, hit the dynamite and kind of created a new landscape and the way that Quentin Tarantino largely did the same thing. I'm wondering if that can even happen today, um, who that voice is going to be. And if we can get back to a place where it's less blockbuster oriented, less sequel minded, I think the short answer is no. Um, but I would be really interested if we could get some voices back, um, stories about humans, stories about people, stories about adults, stories for adults. It can be bleak <laughs> watching, yeah. you know, three, four things a week that just don't, um, that just don't hit your buttons or, or just don't excite you. And you know, there, there will always be things that excite you. And, and, you know, the, the good thing about this job is when you're required to watch, you know, the fourth or fifth movie a week uh, or a fourth or fifth movie of the week, you know, you, you find those diamonds, Sometimes, hopefully, uh, yeah. they seem to be they seem to be fewer and far between, and just the 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 blockbuster uh, sequel IP filmmaking doesn't do a whole lot for me because it never really did in the first place. Well, you know, 
it's not just IP though. It's not like they're making movies based on the Pretty Woman extended universe. This is IP <laughs> based on products that were sold to boys and men. Yeah. That. Yeah. And you know, me. you look at. Yeah, you look at the 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 box office, the top ten films of the year, and you know one one genre that's completely been decimated is romantic comedies. Like they're just gone. Like. And because the, the, the system, the machine that helped review and assess those films was destroyed. Like I, the, the online internet movie geek crowd hated romantic comedies because it's a, it was stories about people with like healthy, like dating lives, which is something that they could not understand. You know, and, and I say that as someone who came from that community. No, that's true. It's interesting because I think especially in the, um, even in the OOs, you had a pretty healthy amount of romantic comedies. You had like the whole Katherine Heigl bend. You had the mm -hmm. Matthew McConaughey, Kate Hudson bend. Um, J-Lo was kind of doing her thing. There was a lot of those. Um, and that did kind of largely go away. Also, I think a lot of those movies, um, you know, they're okay. And I, I look, I still have a, 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 a bit of a fondness for 12, uh, 20, 27 dresses. I almost said 12 dresses. That was the prequel that we haven't yet seen yet in the, from the 27 dresses universe. Um, so I'm not saying that all those were bad, but yeah, you, you don't, you, you don't see a lot of a romantic comedies. You don't see a lot of really good romantic comedies. Um, which is why when something like I want you back, which premiered about a month ago on Amazon prime, when something like that comes along, um, I think it's really worth championing. Um, smart, uh, funny, um, grounded in, I don't know, maybe not uh, full-fledged reality, but, it, you know, you can at least um, world, recognize sure. these people. I Want You Back was done really well, and when stuff like that is done well, um, I, I wanted that movie to be in theaters because I thought that that was a movement, you know, it's tough to get anybody to go to theater, especially, the, you know, as the pandemic continues to rage. But I did see I Want You Back in a theater and uh, it played really well with an audience and it felt really good to be in a, inside a theater watching a movie about adults trying to figure out their love lives uh, with an audience that was fully engaged and laughing along with it. That kind of feeling I hadn't had in a while and it felt yeah. good. Well, you know, and I just miss the big studio mediocrity. Like you go back into like the top <laughs> 20 films in the 90s and there was just so much big studio mediocrity. Yeah. You know, these weren't like, you know, your edgy, like thought provoking independent movies, but just dramas. Very true. Very true. Just kind of like the, the stuff that Sandra Bullock would make. You know what I mean? Yeah. The stuff yeah. that you she know, would make post speed. There was like a you know, for 10 years after Speed, she was just like in a big studio movie a year. And, you know, they weren't they weren't blazing up any 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 lists. But, you know, you get used to go on going on a Friday night to see the Sandra Bullock movie of the year. You know, it's like going to your mom's house and having meatloaf. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, yeah. It, it's not the best meal you've ever ate by <laughs> a long shot. But, you know, I warm, had a long time. I miss it. It's warm. Yeah. It's, someone clearly like labored over it. It wasn't just made by a, a committee of nerds like shouting <laughs> everything they want into uh, the film. All of that brings us to uh, this movie that everyone's talking about this week. You know, and I almost feel like we're becoming now part of the problem. This is the the twist <laughs> in the in this episode where we become part <laughs> of the problem and uh, become another part of this 
machine that's designed to promote um, IP that was based on things for boys. But, uh, you know, you reviewed the Batman and that's a movie I saw as well. I guess I read your review and, and you had some interesting thoughts. What did you what you gave the movie a C? Was that a, a I did. Was that a C is a positive C is a negative? Well, it's, it's look, you know, I, I think that we've been kind of geared towards, um, you know, it used to be a C is a C and you kind of, it stands alone and it's like a discussion, right? It's like, well, this is where yeah. it's at. Um, Rotten Tomatoes. And I, I think that Rotten Tomatoes is fantastic. Um, I get emails from people from around the country that would have otherwise never have seen a review that I wrote. I think that Rotten Tomatoes is a uh, is very worthwhile service. Um, I think that they do great work and I think that they, they, they give people a larger, you know, megaphone or a voice than they perhaps would have had if it was just people have to come find your review. Um, but that Rotten Tomatoes has made, you know, has turned things up into a yay or nay, an up or a down, um, you know, pass fail. Um, and so in that world, you know, my mine is a splat next to the next to my review. And so that long way of saying, I guess, you know, the C is kind of like it would be like a, eh. I, I was not enthused about, about the Batman. Um, I, I came out bummed. I'm not a, I, 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 I never read the Batman comics growing up. I, you know, perhaps that disqualifies, disqualifies me from the discussion in, in some rank. <laughs> you don't deserve an opinion on this film because you didn't spend uh, years of your life researching it. Exactly. Um, I, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't pour over the comics and that's, I look, I, 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 I love everybody that did. Um, I just, you know, <laughs> I've, seen all, I've seen all the Batman movies and, and that's kind of the, the way that I, look at this character and I've always look Batman's kind of like he's he's the big dog in in terms of in terms of superhero movies you're always going to see a Batman movie you know I I would never consider sitting on the sidelines for a Batman movie um you got to see what Batman's up to you got to see where what Batman is saying about our world today and I think that this one is just in in, in unquestionably glum <laughs> uh take and and just dour in ways that I think that there's larger things you can pull out of where we're at today in terms of cinema and the, and the, and the, the conversation about Batman being dark. Is he dark enough? Is he going to be darker? I want him to be darker. I want this character to be the darkest. I want this movie to be so dark. Well, you got all that now. I, I don't see how much darker you can really get with this, with this movie, with this character. And I, I just pulling back a little, like, why are we here? Like Batman in 89 with, Keaton Nicholson and, and, and Burton at the helm was a lot of fun. It was a really fun movie. And I, I liked having fun. I like having fun with Batman. I, I, I think that he's a, he's a, these movies can be fun and they can also talk about where we're at or whatever. Uh, he can also deal in a world that has strings of our own in it. And, you know, we can say, okay, or whatever. Um, but I, I think that, the, I think that I, I like to have some fun with these movies and with the character. I just didn't find that in this movie at all. I, I didn't know why everything was so dark, both, you know, tonally and aesthetically. Um, scenes that you can't see. And it just, it, it made me kind of size three hours. I, I thought that it was a long time to be with this character in this world that's supposed to be real, but it's kind of silly if you, if you pull back a little bit. Um, and I, it made me appreciate the Nolan films more. Um, uh, than perhaps I did at the time. 
you know, I, I'm probably opening myself up to even more criticism right now. You're hearing the axes sharpening. Yeah. And I don't need that either. Like I said, I love everybody. Um, I'm glad that everybody has, I, look, I was genuinely surprised at the overall reaction to the film when even Taylor Swift was on Instagram saying oh, how, that the Batman was phenomenal. I just, I, I was not expecting the world at large to, to be so, I thought that, you know, people would be like, hey man, why, why is this thing so heavy? But it, everybody else seems to dig it much more than I, which I think is fantastic. Well, you know, I appreciate that you didn't love a superhero movie and you had the guts because that's kind of what it takes right now to say that because people get savage for that, especially the DC comic book characters. Um, Absolutely. They, they have a, a particularly brutal fan base. I had a, a friend, Absolutely. Uh, a colleague of yours, uh, Rene Rodriguez in Miami, and he did not like Batman v Superman. And mm-hmm. People immediately started calling him a Marvel bitch. And actually, he is a very much a DC bitch. He loves DC comics. He just did not like Batman v Superman because it was unlikable Drek. Yeah, I mean, that movie was punishing. It was brutal. I, I yeah. do think that the Batman was a respite from the uh, Snyder take on the character. I'm going to say something in a minute that's going to spoil the film. And I'll warn everyone before I say that. But, you know, the other thing that was interesting to me was here is a movie that is three hours long. And it felt like there was maybe at the maximum eight different sets. Do you think how many, I mean, I'm just thinking how many locations were in this movie? I think there were only like eight to 10 different places that these characters went. <laughs> like it was all like, <laughs> we're, we're back at, we're back at this open ended uh, skyscraper right now. That's still under construction. Um, you know, part of that I'm sure has to do with filming during the pandemic. Um, you Probably. know, places where you can go places that are COVID friendly places that have been, you know, vetted, et cetera. So the fact that they did film this thing during a pandemic, I think very much, you know, it's a pandemic Batman movie. I think that, but it also kind of gave it like an old studio film quality, which I, I at least admired it where it almost felt like it was like just sort of an elevation from a play where it could have, it could have taken place on stage and they just adapted <laughs> it um, that way. That's an interesting take. I like that. I like that take. That is interesting. So I'm going to go spoiler now. And so if you're listening to this and you've never seen the Batman and you don't want to be spoiled, great. Please um, <laughs> just fast forward. But so the big reveal in the end is that the, the villain, the Riddler, played by Paul Dano, is, is a Batman fan. His idea was he was going to do all this evil shit and Batman would love him. And, you know, he's despondent, completely shattered when he finds out the Batman thinks he's a criminal and wants him locked away like the scummy is and you know the other the other interesting piece is that all of the riddler's henchmen are um online trolls like these people from 4chan and reddit <laughs> who uh were subscribed to his feed because you know he's just he's this alt-right content creator with his conspiracy theories and uh these people are coming out in, in real life and uh you know they're making their own little january 6th in uh, Gotham City, it was very dark. I and I'm with you on that, but I did think that was an interesting reveal that maybe this character inspires fascism of a sort and uh, inspires nihilistic, hateful, brooding behavior—the kind of behavior that um, Joel Schumacher decried when Harry Knowles was bashing his film before it came out. Yeah, and you know, by the time we get to the kind of Reddit followers 
thread <laughs> portion of the film, it was disturbing to me in a kind of inspiring copycat kind of way in ways that I remember Joker being talked about, but never quite realized. Remember that remember everyone was really worried about what kind of what effects the Joker would have on the real world. Um, yeah, this this felt much more uh, incendiary to me and much more worrisome because it was like a it was like a how to on you could compare it to a school shooting. Um, I, and that kind of gave me the creeps. Um, it it and does feel a little creepy. Yeah, 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 and and that's look, that's effective filmmaking. If you if you if you leave feeling some type of way, then then in in a certain aspect, the the film did its job. Um, but I don't know. I I come from a different school. Uh, I I don't need to be. I don't need to come skipping out of the theater. But I was just like, what are we doing? This is Batman, right? Like, why are we? Yeah. Well, am I feeling like this coming out of a Batman movie? But. You know, I, again, just me. The one thing I'm hoping, though, is that maybe it is the setup for a sequel that is lighter, where the Batman realized that, that all he's done is inspire people to, to do hateful, violent shit, and that his path forward is to be a brighter, more inspiring uh, human being who, like, does the work on himself to become a better person, <laughs> you know? No, that that I, I, I would love that. I Look, I don't see how we can get darker with this character. And I don't see how many more times you can play something in the way by Nirvana. I think you, you got to play all apologies <laughs> in the next movie. Um, you know, you've got to play a different Nirvana song, even in bloom, you know, Cobain was a dark guy, but even Cobain would come out of this thing. Like, dude, are you serious? Something in the way is, is it's not a deep cut. It's definitely not a tier Nirvana. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I, when they first played it, I was like, whoa, I mean, that is a, that's exceptional use there. Uh, and then they played it again. And I was like, you can't do that twice. I mean, the effect is on the first one. You got to give me something else on, on needle drop too. You don't repeat your needle drop. Yeah, <laughs> that, that is so, kind of a, a needle drop rule. You get, you get one take. You get and maybe one. you can play it in the credits again. Yeah, it, yeah. Uh, and I saw um, uh, Ted K, which is a, a movie about Ted Kaczynski that came out a couple weeks ago. And they use, uh, I think it's Alice in Chains Rooster in it. And it, it, it's a way that I hadn't heard Rooster be used yet. It really set a mood. It kind of hits the same tone you're looking for. And it's grunge, 90s Seattle. Um, you just can't drop something in the way twice. Um, especially yeah. when, it's a, when, it's, when it's a song that means what that song means. Um, you only get one with that one. And I just thought that that was sloppy to use it twice. Well, it's, you know, it's just a casualty of our rock becoming dad rock and so uh just get ready for more of that the first time i heard uh smashing pumpkins today on the classic rock station i almost drove my car off the road <laughs> that's, that's, that's just where we are man that's where we are <laughs> i get it i embrace it um but you know the acceptance the acceptance came slowly well adam i just want to thank you again for for writing me that message i really appreciated it you know that episode was a bottle episode it was yeah. sort of my love letter to what i saw as sort of this boogie night style shift in the world of film criticism <laughs> where the, the pros got replaced by the amateurs vhs just destroyed everything and um you know it, it, it was a lot like boogie nights only uh less drugs maybe but definitely way less fucking 
and uh, yeah, <laughs> like I, I, I would not have I would not have reached out had it not struck a nerve. Um, and the reason that it struck a nerve is because it was really well done, and you you told uh, you told a good story, and you told it um, in in the way that it needed to be told. Um, so that's why it that's why it struck a chord. And I just want to say, you know, really good work on that for you. Um, nothing nothing said to me, let me reach out to this guy until you nailed it with that episode. And so I'm I, I try to uh, give props when they're due, and you definitely deserve props. Well, thank you so much, Adam. And, you know, I, I wish you the best of luck. And as you kept talking about how you've got this job and this great opportunity, I kept knocking on my desk just to keep keep your luck. And uh, good luck with all that. And, you know, I'm looking forward to uh, future movies and and maybe some movies for grownups. Let's hope, man. And look, um, as, as we wrap our conversation here and wrap our conversation about the Batman, I Want You Back is a really good movie. <laughs> all right. You gotta, you gotta, like, like, it's like you talk about championing those small films, like in that episode and, and the way that those critics weren't able to do that. Look, it's on Amazon Prime. It's by no means an indie, but I don't know how many people out there have seen I Want You Back and it's worth dialing up. I'm watching it this weekend. All right. Yeah, good. Have a good one, man. Thanks so much. I appreciate your time. also just for talking with us i thought that was a, a great conversation and uh yeah i, I really just valued uh, his insight there so me too thanks adam yeah um so that's it for our show um if you want to hear the full harry Knowles review of blade 2 uh, we'll play that um after i don't recommend it Chris. all right enjoy <laughs> see you next week folks yeah bye right. a quick content warning this clip includes adult language and deals with serious themes that include a full reading of Harry Knowles' review of Blade 2. You've been warned. Seriously this time. Warned. Enjoy. If enjoy is something you do when you hear this review. Yeah. A warning. Blade 2 is an R-rated movie. This is the NC-17 review of it. You have been warned. For me to review Blade 2... It is a major conflict of interest because Guillermo del Toro and I are brothers. His father says so. His wife believes this. Guillermo and I are just the best of friends. But when El Gordo calls my father dad and I call his dad pops and we delve into hours of passionate discussion about H.P. Lovecraft, Goya, Steve Ditko action, the movies, and pussy... We can all lose track of time on planet Earth. But having attended the world premiere of Blade 2 last night, one inescapable thought crossed my mind during the movie. Ten to one, I believe Guillermo del Toro eats pussy better than any man alive. Watch his House of Pain sequence in Blade 2. Blade 2 is the tongue, mouth, fingers, and lips of a lover. The audience is the clit. Watch your audience. This is where Guillermo del Toro goes down on the audience. It starts with long licks, with a nose bump on the joy button. Slowly, he smiles as he does this. Watching the audience begin to squirm, then he takes the audience's clit in his mouth and just licks it like crazy. 
the audience is ready on that precipice, then calm. He backs off, long licks again, bringing in a finger to massage a bit, licks from the bottom to the top. The audience is cooing. He has them. They want release. He acts like he's going to give it to you, takes you right to the edge. The audience's back's arched, ready to come, backs off, pinching the nipples just so, his head bobbing up to say, you like? The audience shifts around, needing release. He builds again, the pressure at a near boiling point. Each stroke and moment a hypersensitive place. Two fingers to the sweet spot. The audience is there, right there at that point. Suddenly, he's relentlessly taking the audience through a rampage of orgasms, trying to get away, trying to escape, back, back. But he has you, and he's never going to let you forget this moment. The audience was electric, frenetically frothing. Yermo hears them begging no more. When he decides to stop for a moment, there's that relaxed calm. The audience relaxes, labored breathing, a sated smile, when suddenly the relentless bastard is at it again. You begin laughing, trying to push him away, but no, more pleasure, more joy, more fun. You can't handle it. You start giggling and screaming, and it goes like this for quite some time, till at the end, the credits roll, the theater lights come up, you look at the screen, you realize you want that tongue again. You want that feeling again, and you watch it again and again, because damn, he respects the clit. Okay, maybe I take the metaphor too far, maybe. But I had two girls around me, Patch black and blued my right forearm with slaps and rabbit punches as though Guillermo was pounding the short hairs and saffron, not Vegas's, gripping my shoulder from behind like freaking Spock. Leaning up to my ear to say, you didn't tell me this was pornography. To which I grabbed her hand, sniffed her fingers and said, mmm, your fingers are wet. Enjoy. Now you might feel all of this is inappropriate behavior on my part. But folks, at the Q&A afterwards, the second question came from a woman on the front row that asked Del Toro, could you comment on the vaginal influence of the Reapers? Guillermo looked like the wet chin thigh splitter that he is and said, you have to understand makeup artists, they never get any pussy. So they are always creating it exactly now lest you think this film is merely pornographic and you seemingly are living in the delusion that that is a bad thing it is not guillermo likes to pretend this movie is just there to make you go whoa but only a blind man can't see guillermo at work here blade 2 is from goya's black period look at the palette the brutal primalness of the Reapers, the sparing use of color. There is sadness amongst the orgasms in this film. There is a solemn, pathetic nature to the emaciated monsters of the Reapers, a melancholy to movie at its quietest moments. When you see the Reaper that Chris was Whistler catches, like a coyote, he's been gnawing away at his arm to get away. There's just a captivating, can't look, 
away, nature of the dead, the dying and the diseased. And Guillermo understands that morbidity. You can see it in his film here. His mounds of skulls in the sewers of Prague are not pure bones. There's rancid strings of something so icky and so nasty that my eyes did not define it. The film revels in the grand guzhinal of it all, and it does it all with a smile. A smile. That reminds me. Many people will wonder why Del Toro's Blade is so much more appealing than the original. And the reason is Del Toro gets Wesley to smile. And for a bit, he takes off his glasses and we see his eyes. He strips away a bit of his cool, stoic manliness and lets a bit of that kind kid in the cookie jar joy of naughtiness count. The result is absolutely captivating. Ron Perlman. When Ron and Guillermo get together, there is a magic to the scenes. Go check out Kronos. Watch Ron's vain, nose-obsessed bad guy. Watch how utterly delicious the scenes are with Ron. Absolutely magic. Here, Ron comes off looking, sounding, and being just that badass you love. Reinhardt is a glorious bastard in this film. Just a fantastic ass of a man. After the film, Ron took the stage with Guillermo. He was dressed with a cool black leather jacket and a BPRD t-shirt. Hellboy. My God, folks, having read Guillermo's Hellboy script, it is a 100% Guillermo del Toro. And folks, as cool as Blade 2 is, Blade 2 was a teaser. It was just a pussy fucking. Hellboy is a deep dicking. The difference between Blade 2 and most sequels you see is that Guillermo wasn't interested in making a sequel to Blade. He wanted to make a vampire that you could be afraid of again. Not some guy with extended canines, but something you would run into mortal fear of. He wanted to create a swallower of souls, something from the inky black parts of your mind, something new. Blade has a subtle romance, platonic bonds, machismo posturing, and just an insane amount of ass-kicking. I hope Sam Raimi can top this with Spider-Man, but can Tobey Maguire be more cool than Wesley Snipes? Does that Green Goblin costume allow for the actor to perform an improv and connect with his audience the way that Perlman does here? Or the Reapers? Then there's the fact that this is 100% R-rated unapologetically. Hope you enjoy Guillermo del Tormo's tongue. I mean, Blade 2. You'll be back for seconds.